and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here for episode 281 and my conversation with percussion teacher, performer, composer, and head of percussion at the Eastman Community Music School in Rochester, New York, Kyle Peters. We'll check in with Kyle in a moment. Well, as was the case a couple of weeks ago, we in mid-Missouri are in the midst of another possible snowstorm to hit the area as I record this. We're not expected to get the nearly 10 inches that we got a few weeks ago, but we are getting rain and a sharp drop in overnight temperatures as it turns to snow. So I'm expecting some remote teaching again. Hooray! And let's hope it's just not for too long. And as the temperatures are expected to head back above freezing soon after, that the roads will hopefully stay generally okay. Snore. All right. Enough about that. Let's head to the Northeast and check in with Kyle Peters. Kyle comes to me from one of the more unusual means. He emailed me. Usually I'm the one doing the contacting, but he got in touch with me, said he enjoyed the podcast, and sent me his book of marimba pieces entitled Soundscapes to check out. I did that, enjoyed working through the book, and eventually we got in touch, and here we are now. Kyle's been based in what's commonly referred to as the upstate New York region of the state, with his growing up in the Hudson Valley, attending SUNY Potsdam and Eastman, while also taking lessons in New York City, and currently residing in Rochester as educator, composer, and performer. He's frequently involved with lots of different areas of percussion and performing in that region, and we get to a lot of that there. It turns out we also know a lot of the same folks in common. Classmates like Connor Stevens, Megan Arns, Hannah Weaver, and Andrea Vinay are brought up, and they are all folks that I have interviewed on this podcast. And as usual, I will include links to their episodes in the show notes at the end. So it was great to have Kyle on the show, so let's get to it. We recorded this interview over Skype on January 14th, 2022, and it begins right now. So Kyle, give me a summation of your percussion responsibilities as they are right now. Sure. So my full-time job is at the Eastman Community Music School, University of Rochester, part of the Eastman School of Music, where I'm the percussion instructor, and uh, I see about right now 36 students a week in my studio on top of three percussion ensembles and quite a few other things that'll that'll keep me busy around here. Uh, I am most recently the uh, new percussion adjunct professor at Roberts Wesleyan College and a member of the Rochester Philharmonic Orchestra. How long have you been doing the community music school? So that I, I'm in my fifth year. I want to say fifth year now. Uh, I graduated Eastman in 2017. And as I was finishing up my last semester. Uh, the and this position, is your master's, right? Yes, master's degree in mm -hmm. Eastman. The position at the Eastman Community Music School opened up. Further back, Pete, I uh, attended the Crane School of Music for my undergrad, where I did a degree in music education, and I had intended on being a, a percussion teacher in some way, shape, or form, or band director, or general music. I didn't know. Um, and I really fell in love with performing, met Michael Burrett, and said, I got to go to Eastman. So I went to Eastman and did a master's in performance there. And as I was graduating, I had a lot of auditions lined up, 
And then ECMS opened up this position. So ECMS for short for Eastman Community Music School. And I said, man, I got to go for it. It's a, it's a dream job where I get to teach at a school, have a studio of students, especially with such a large age range, something we can kind of talk a, a little bit about later, if you like. When you're finishing up the master's, did you, were you okay with the fact that you might be sticking around? Start yeah. There. Yeah. I, you know, I love Rochester, actually. It's a, it's, it's a cool place. I know some people aren't too big of fans of the weather, but we, I really like it. And for a career in music, I had, I was intending on taking auditions and ending up where I was going to end up, where there was a spot where there was an audition at the time or where there was a teaching position at the time. And I'm lucky to be doing what I'm doing to still be relatively close to my family and friends and be in New York where I grew up. So it's kind of the best of both worlds. And I really, I don't think I could have asked for a better location in regards to doing what I'm doing. I kind of know a little bit about this um, because I'd had um, Kristen Shiner McGuire on and I oh, know cool. she's local there too and at, yeah. at Nazareth. Um, but like, is there just a lot of schools out there? I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm always shocked when I hear about yeah. what's yeah, available in the area. There are a lot of schools and in particular, I think there are a lot of music programs out here as well. You've got the University of Rochester where Eastman's at. Uh, there's Nazareth where Kristen's at, Roberts Wesleyan, there's R RIT, more so for the music schools, it's going to be Na Nazareth Eastman uh, for the two, two big ones in Rochester. Okay. But yeah, there's a lot of schools, a lot of, a lot of college kids in town. That's what makes part of Rochester, at least where I'm living, it's a, it's a hip environment, super artsy, which is great, really supportive of the arts. It's, so it's a cool, cool area to, to be in. The community music school, so is that job, obviously you told me it's a lot about, you told me about all the teaching stuff, but is there a large administrative component to it? A little history, like Eastman Community Music School was actually formed by George Eastman, who put together the Eastman School of Music. And it started as like a preparatory, just from my, my understanding of the history of the school, started as a college prep program where students were going to be going into music. They would prepare their auditions, work there. But over time, it, it formed into be the community music school for everybody, anyone who wanted to study music. And a majority of my time in this position is just teaching. And I'm very lucky that we have an amazing, amazing office staff that pretty much takes care of all the administrative aspects of, of the job. So really, for me, I'm teaching 99% of the time. The other time, I'll be conducting my ensembles. As far as the biggest administration, if, if we want to call it that, would be just recruiting for the school. So I have a lot of high school students. Generally, right now, I'm teaching third grade all the way through high school, 12th grade, and then also teaching college as well. So I have such a large range of students, but students graduate, and I need to make sure there's a current uh, and always a flow of, of students coming through the school to keep what I'm doing here and, and to keep the school going strong as well. But uh, recruiting is probably the, the one thing besides teaching that I spend a lot of my time on and thinking about how to bring more students into the school. So what does that entail to make that happen? Yeah, originally it was going into schools. There are a ton of high schools in Rochester, a lot of uh, really strong music programs all around. I got to know a lot of the teachers there. I'd go into the schools, give a little percussion class, whether it be on mallets, snare drum, auxiliary percussion, um, reaching out for to different events going on in the area, whether it be a NISMA, which is the New York State School Music Association. Mm -hmm. So I, I do a lot with that. Um, and just kind of trying to show up everywhere to introduce myself to students, 
especially parents, it's always great to meet the students and say, hey, I'd love to come. I'd love for you to have, you know, come work with me. But the odds of them going home and saying, hey, mom, dad, I met this percussion teacher. Um, can I go study with them? Not not the best to rely on. So I like to find ways to meet parents, talk to parents, get them downtown, maybe see a Philharmonic concert and then uh, have them pursue studying at ECMS. Where is this place that you teach actually located? So it's on the same street as the Eastman School of Music, right on Gibbs Street. There's ECMS. And actually, for, for a long time, ECMS was part of Eastman. Like my when I first got hired, my studio was just right underneath Michael Burrett's studio. And then there, there, uh, the university bought a building at the end of Gibbs Street, which is where Eastman is located. And they renovated four floors. We have all these really nice studios. Uh, so we're on the same street, pretty much the same building, but maybe a, a doorstep away from the actual Eastman School of Music. They took the building over. It, it, it included being furnishing with a lot of instruments and all the gear and doorways and everything you needed. Yeah. Yeah. Doorways, especially. I know the door to my studio, it, it opens up to way larger than we actually need for any percussion instrument, which is great. Yeah. Yeah. It was very well done. And it's, it's, you know, it's nice for me to come to every day, but I think it's especially nice for the students who walk in and, and feel like, wow, this is, this is a great place to, to be in and, and, and want to persuade them to come downtown into the city, which isn't always something that a lot of parents are comfortable after a long day of work, driving downtown into the city and, and spending time there. But having these facilities really gives them some good incentive to say, wow, this is, this is worth it. Does that mean that your schedule is nearly entirely afternoon to evening based? Yeah, that's right. So the way it works, like a typical day, if I'm playing, if we have a busy week in the Philharmonic, I've got rehearsals in the morning and then I go into teaching and then I've got the concert in the evening. So it's a very, and then I'll, I'll have to, I, I go out to Roberts Wesleyan one day a week and teach there as well. So there are some weeks when in the morning, like on Monday, I'll see my girlfriend and say, okay, I'll see you Saturday. But she's very understanding of that. But uh, yeah, for ECMS, generally teaching three to seven thirty, three to eight o'clock, depending on how many students. And since I have 30, 36 students right now, a majority, 45 minutes, um, some an hour lesson, and then some 30 minute lessons, it, it does start to fill up a lot of time in the evenings. Is the is the lesson breakdown on age or is it on what they have like a pay plan that they can? They yes, can it's a little bit of both. So if I have a new student coming in in fifth grade, third grade, fourth grade, whenever they might want to start, I'll usually encourage a 30 minute lesson to start. And usually they'll, as they get older, they'll add on 45 minutes, then to an hour. So it, it's not necessarily based on age, but it definitely is directly related to my older students generally have the longer lessons. And are you also teaching I was going to say like non-college age students, but I'm thinking of like returning students. There's, there's a word non-traditional. There it is. Sure. Sure. <laughs> so I'd say at Eastman, I, I I've had some college students in the past who have actually like done a degree and then come back and, and wanted to take lessons. I actually have also adult students who some I've had a Juilliard person, someone who went to Juilliard for their degree in piano, graduated, came back, wanted to take percussion, someone who did a degree, a degree in trombone. So a lot of, retired adults saying like, Hey, I want to, I want to play some percussion now. And, and, uh, I'd say as far as returning students, otherwise it's mainly just high, mainly students from Rochester, some looking to pursue music, others, uh, that play in the local phil youth philharmonics. It's a mix of everything, Pete. It's, it's, it's wild. I can go from teaching someone to hold a pair of sticks one minute to teaching Paul Lansky the next to, you know, it's, it keeps me on my toes, which is what I like a lot about the position. 
do students who are who study with you who are in high school does it lead to some of them going to Eastman I mean obviously that's not there that's a separate like right. division but a goal of the school kind of used as a, a bridging program to to train someone from beginning to degree in college usually no on paper I, st- I think statistically most students don't go off and major in music but I'd say every year I'll have three to four students who go in and audition at Eastman or go and audition at other music schools. So it is a fair amount. It's more than probably a normal high school, of course, but uh, a majority will still, they go into other majors besides music, but a lot do attend the university of Rochester. Hmm. So within the music school, within your um, part of the school is, is, do they have every instrument covered? Oh yeah. We pretty much, you know, the Eastman inventory is phenomenal and we at ECMS have just in the the rehearsal room alone, there are four marimbas in there right now, two sets of timpani. And if we ever need anything, uh, my, one of my colleagues in the orchestra, Brian Stotz, he's the percussion tech at Eastman, who is just an amazing guy. He'll make sure we have it. So very lucky not having to track down instruments, not having to say, oh, I wish I could pro- program this piece, but I can't because we don't have this. So it's it's a great environment where if if we need something or my students need something, We'll make sure they have it. Does this mean that you actually still have quite a number of connections with Eastman? Yeah. Eastman proper, I guess, maybe we think about it. Yeah. And uh, Michael Burrett, as I'm sure I know you've talked about him before and a lot of people know him. He is such a great guy and he was my teacher, but now just such a a good friend and, and continues to be my mentor. I love the guy. I talk to him all the time and he's... I'm happy to be connected. Actually, when I first graduated, I started teaching here my first year. I pulled him aside. I'm like, you know, I don't want to be that guy like who graduates college and then just sticks around. Everyone's like, what's this guy still doing here? It's not like that. I, I, I give the college students their space. I get to know them and I like to meet everybody. I'll sit in on the Eastman juries, the Eastman placement auditions. So I'm very much involved with what's going on with the, with the college students, but then I, I let them, I let them do their thing as well. Yeah. Have you tried to up your coffee habit to match? Uh, Brits. Well, yeah, I drink. I mean, <laughs> this is number one today. Uh, <laughs> yeah, a lot of coffee, a lot of coffee to keep me going. Yeah, <laughs> but, that's but not where, where where we'll meet. It's like, oh, if I'm gonna if I'm gonna go into Java's right between Eastman and ECMS, there's a coffee shop, and it's just great coffee. And I probably run into to him more there than <laughs> anywhere else. Than than his studio or concerts or anything. <laughs> right. Well, that's good. That's actually a good place to run into. Yeah, I would yeah. imagine. Now I know that you also are a composer, and I mean you. Uh, and I was going to talk to you about the the piece you the the pieces you sent me. Was the the writing that you do? It's it, was there an intention to write for the students that you were teaching that you've been teaching the last five years? Is that where that developed, or had that been going on before then? Yeah. So I had started writing when I was at Eastman. Not to. I wasn't intending on publishing anything or having things performed, but it was something I had to do actually for my master's degree. Uh, my timpani teacher at the time, Chip Ross, who was also the timpanist in the Rochester Phil, he said, hey, I want you to write a timpani piece. And that's the first time I ever put my pencil on some on staff paper and started saying, okay, how do I write a piece of music? And I really enjoyed the process. So I just started writing some percussion ensemble pieces and just for fun. They never got played, but just something I would do to express myself creatively outside of the practice room. When 
I started at ECMS, I didn't have a very large percussion ensemble library. And I noticed in my first percussion ensemble rehearsal, there's three percussion ensembles that I direct. Uh, let's, we'll call it like beginner, intermediate, advanced. And the beginner ensemble is age, uh, grades four through six. And they'll meet for just three rehearsals and then they'll have their concert. So trying to find rep where beginner students can play successfully in three rehearsals, put on a concert and, and have a nice presentation was challenging for me. So I started writing percussion ensemble music for my beginner students. And after a first, my first year of teaching, I, I played what we had in the library and got to learn what were what was ac um, accessible for a student of that age to play without having to really practice it. I'd only see them three times before the concert. Yep. So after a year of working with students, knowing what beginners can usually play well, I started writing music particularly for each student. So I said, okay, here's the roster. I'd have it a month ahead of time. So I'd write a piece for those four students knowing which level they were at. So it started like that. I wrote it for my students and then they could perform it successfully. And I started using it then as a teaching tool where I would write uh, two to three pieces a year for, for my beginner students with teaching moments in it. So I said, okay, we're all going to learn. Here's one measure of five, eight, you know, on a piece of three, four. So here's five, eight. And it, because I'd learned that in such a short period of time, if there's a piece with here's five, eight, here's syncopation, here's this and that it's, it's too much for a beginner to try to, to grasp and play well in three, in three rehearsals. So my composing started as an educational tool, more so I think at the beginning of over the last five years, there were more so etude-like pieces. And then I started studying composition on my own. And, and um, actually my, my mentor, Jim Peterzak, gave me some good advice too. He said, if you're going to start writing, you know, start writing something for yourself as well. So I started writing music that I would want to play and music that's not for a particular level. Uh, but over my years at ECMS, four mallets was always an interesting concept to introduce to a student. And I, I'm sure a lot of teachers will ask, okay, when should I introduce four mallets? When is a student ready for four mallets? What rep should I start them on for four mallets? And I, ha I, felt, I had felt pretty comfortable about teaching the four mallet technique at the time, but finding music that a student could play a week later or two weeks later to show them that like, okay, you're playing four mallets. Gathered all four mallet material for percussion and, and looked through it and said, what can I use to teach my students? And the way I program uh, my lessons in the curriculum is there's always going to be, there's great pieces for beginner four mallet. And I think everyone knows yellow after the rain and everyone kind of in the percussion field, a lot of people will just roll their eyes. It's like yellow after the rain. How many times do I have to hear that? Mm -hmm. And I think it's a great educational piece, which is why it's played a lot. Uh, there's a lot a student can learn from it. And I'll tell you what, we've heard it thousands of times, but for a student just starting four mallets, when they hear that piece, they love it. I've never had a student say like, no, I don't like that. They're always, their eyes are wide and they want to start practicing it. So I said, man, that's great. I want to, I want to create pieces that give them that eyes wide, like, oh my goodness, I want to play that piece. But unlike Yellow After the Rain, which I'll usually have a student work on for a month or two, I wanted to create pieces that they could only work on from a week or two, so more short-term, get them playing a lot. Uh, so I started writing etudes for four mallet marimba and would just give them to my students. And by the end of my second year, I had five etudes and I would, I would alter them. Every time I'd give them to a student, 
they'd come in the next week and, and play through it. And I'd find measures that I'd ask, why are they struggling with that measure? So I'd go back, I'd rewrite that measure. Cause I don't want them struggling. They're not, if it's okay, there's one lateral stroke that doesn't need to be there. It's not helping them technically. It doesn't need to be there. It's just getting in the way of them playing fluidly and musically. So I would alter the pieces. And by the, th the third year I had about 11 etudes and again, I'd pass them out to my students and it would be just little things. I'd say, okay, five minutes here, you're gonna learn this next week. And I, I showed them if it were appropriate for their notation, I'd go over with them first. They come in the next week and I'd look for all these problem areas. Why are they having a problem with it? I'd fix it. So eventually I ended up with about, excuse me, 26 etudes that I would use week to week with my students playing four mallets and ended up picking 18 of them that I thought were very effective uh, teaching tools, both technically and musically. Uh, I find that a lot of beginning four mallet studies can become very technical. We talk about like our permutations, our rotations, but I like to also talk about music by the second lesson. Once they know how to hold the mallets, we're making music, we're not just playing technique. So I've compiled the etudes, a couple of my teacher friends who I'd send them to said, hey, you, you should, you should publish this. This is great. We're using this in our lessons. So I decided to go forward with it. And uh, one bright side of the pandemic is it gave me the time to create the book, hire a graphic designer, and I kind of did it all myself and, and put it out there. And it's been it's been doing very well, which is very it's it's nice to see. And I'm I'm glad people are finding it useful. So that's a long kind of explanation of how I got to to creating a book of etudes. The problem with the with so many of them in in terms of when you're talking about the music is that they aren't a lot of those pieces that were not that like feel like exercises aren't written with music in mind. They're written right as exercises that have been given bar lines exactly. and, and meters right. and maybe a dynamic or two. Right. Right. Yeah. And with 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 the soundscapes, I tried to write tunes like just short tunes that you their parents wouldn't mind listening to yeah i know parent would probably much rather hear a nice floating tune than permutations for 30 minutes um and a tune that you don't want to hear permutations yeah, for 30 right minutes. you have like another 17 lessons after this. i know i think yeah i hear about an hour of permutations a day just by doing a 30 seconds each <laughs> yeah. but uh yeah yeah i just wanted to to get students thinking musically right off the bat, which is very important. Yeah, for and, sure. You know, with, with beginning four mallet, there's a, again, this is, I was not trying to say, okay, you're not going to do this. You're going to do this now. This is more of a supplement that, that teachers can use as a short term. Like here's this piece, work on it, look at it. Because sometimes when you look at a beginner marimba piece, like this piece is marketed for beginner marimba, beginner four mallet players. There's this, disconnect in repertoire i find that sometimes that someone with good intentions might be writing a piece for a, a beginner four mallet player but musically and conceptually that piece is not at a beginner level so technically right. yes so you get these pieces hey hey kyle i got this piece i love it sounds great i'm going to play it it says beginner I'm, I'm just starting out and then they can't even get through the first eight measures because you've got your hands doing groups of fives even though it's just 16th notes or you've got this polyrhythm in the right hand that Sure, it's playable for me. It's playable for someone in college. But when do people really start four mallets? And if if we want them starting it earlier, sixth, seventh grade, why not? There has to be music that is approachable for them 
in their brains as well. And that's what I ran into. I'd find, I bought all these beginner pieces and before even giving them, I said, all right, well, maybe I can, I can read through it right now. There's no problem, but musically, conceptually, way above the level that a student is ready for to tackle four mallets and music at the same time. So that's, that's what I was trying to contribute. And those pieces are great. There's places for that in education as well. And we're lucky as percussion to have all of this. Like if I wanted, if I have a student who's an advanced four mallet player, but maybe just needs to refine his technique, then I'll go to that beginner etude where it's conceptually difficult. So he feels challenged, but can work, his, work on just getting a great sound. So when musical ideas start getting in the way of a student's sound, when technique and music are, are kind of hitting each other where, okay, I'm focused on the music, there goes my technique, I'm focused on my technique, I can't focus on the music, then you've got some problems and bad habits start to form and it's too much. So I wanted, I wanted to write pieces where the music not going to get in the way, they can focus on playing or they can focus on the tune, all while almost tricking them into practicing their, their fundamentals. I mean, that's what it takes, tricks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I so when when you sent me this a while ago, I hadn't I I like played through everything, and then I didn't. But I, I was like I I really liked a lot of them. The, my I think my favorite one soundtrack one two three four cool. And it's um because it's like that's one where I mean I I guess you you see it as like a like a movie soundtrack, right? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, with these soundscapes, each one is titled with something to give a student a just to plant a seed in their head. Like, OK, how might I interpret this musically? It's supposed to paint a picture um, like Nimbus is one of them where I, I say, OK, we need to play light here. Always up off the instrument. Give them that idea. Soundtrack was when I wrote that one, I, I sent it to my brother. I'm like, hey, hey, what do you think of this? Does this work musically? Because um, it's, it's really soundtrack one, two, three, four, it's called. It's the permutation one, two, three, four, almost the entire time, which I like to introduce early on for a student's technique and also interval changing. So they're working on the permutation while changing intervals. And the middle two, the middle two mallets will stay on the same note. For, I think it's the entire piece. So they can focus on just changing their outside mallet intervals. And he's like, man, this sounds like it could be from the show Lost or something like <laughs> I forget what he said. So I said, all right, I'm going to call it soundtrack. So hopefully with the, the title soundtrack, they're thinking cinematic. And I didn't put... That one I put, I think, player's choice of, of dynamics is the only yeah. one in the book where they can be creative and say, okay, I'm going to phrase it this way. Yep, that's right. Yeah. And that's been one, my students tend to, to that one is just a week study now. I will have them mm. learn it over a week. And I had my students as early as sixth and seventh grade be able to play that one following the curriculum I've kind of set in place for, for goals for them to develop their technique. And I should I should also mention too, on YouTube, uh, Cameron Leach is performing that one. And something that was awesome for me is when I put out this book, I was recording them. I wanted my students to have reference videos, so when they worked on them, they don't have to wait until a week for, to be able to to hear what it sounds like again. So all of these are recorded online. And I I have asked my friends in the percussion, actually my Eastman classmates when I was at Eastman. So there's uh, Aaron Locklear, Andrea Vinay, Hannah Weaver, Darren Lynn and Cameron Leach, and they're all playing some of these etudes. So I thought it would be like, I was going to record them, but my students don't need to hear me play. They hear me play every week, although I am doing a couple, but I wanted them to hear musicians that I respect and my friends and saying these, these are great percussionists learn from them as well. 
Yeah. I mean, and Brent Blackard, Brent Blackard, by the way. Yeah, you, 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 uh, not, not a bunch of hacks. I'll just say that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, so that, that's, that's really cool. Yeah. Kyle, where did you grow up? I grew up in, uh, Stony Point, New York, a little outside, uh, like Nyack, I guess. It's kind of the, by, a little outside New York City. Then, uh, grew up in a town called Johnson, which is super small, but in Orange County. Those of you just on the map, tri-state area, New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania, excuse me. Connecticut. Uh, Come on, get right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Connecticut. That's right. I grew up there. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then lived there my whole, throughout high school. That's north of the city, right? Where you were? Stony Point? Yeah, yeah. It's a little bit north. Okay. North of Westchester? Yep. Okay. Yep. That's right. It's about, yeah, Westchester is about like an hour south from, from there. Okay. But that's where my dad grew up. I have a lot of family in Westchester. So, uh, and actually being so close, uh, I would just that metropolitan area. I would go into New York city to take percussion lessons for a a big portion of my, my childhood and also studied with a instructor, Al Konikowski in Orange County, who was, who was great as well. Got it. I have family in, um, Warwick. Oh, my brother is a chorus teacher in Warwick. Is he really? Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Cool town, yeah. Uh, I was just there, actually, for the holiday. Really? Yeah, and my father was an administrator in Warwick for a very long time. How long? When did he stop? He retired maybe five, six, seven years ago. He was, he, he was at Warwick for, I'd say, at least 20, 25 years. Wow. Okay. I'll have to ask my sister. Um, I don't. Do you know the last name Giuliano? Have you ever heard that? No, but I if she had any involvement with the Warwick schools, I'm I'm sure my father would would recognize the name. Okay, because I my, the uh, they were mostly in in um, like the Catholic okay uh, schools up there, so I don't know if um, at least her kids were, as far as I know. So, but anyway, yeah, that's that's that's. I was like, yeah, I know that. I was like, that name that seems sounds way too familiar. I I grew up on Long Island, so it's like it's not my sister and her family moved up to Warwick. It was like then I started knowing about that. It's very different. It's not it is. when when people think of, of New York, they do not think of, of Warwick. <laughs> That's, for sure. That's for sure. It's like a yeah. Not a, not a lot of places like Warwick. How does the percussion or before I ask that, do you have any family members in the arts? Just me and my brother. My older, brother, younger? Twin. Wow. Nice. Yes. Yeah. Uh, my mother is an educator. My father is an educator and administrator. Nobody else in my family plays any instruments. Uh, I, we just grew up in a very supportive and positive uh, music program in our schools, which really pushed us to pursuing the arts. And was it just kind of the fifth grade band thing that got started, or was it before then? It was, uh, yeah, fifth grade band is when I started. I didn't really have the biggest passion for percussion until about my sophomore year of high school. When uh, I remember uh, there was a senior in school, I'll never forget it. He was playing a four mallet marimba piece and it just blew my mind. I said, Oh my gosh, I didn't know that was possible. And really I wanted, I just got excited about it. I played just mainly drum set and I uh, had to, to, to force myself to pick up some mallets to even 
accept that I had to audition for music school. I remember going to my band teacher, and I had I must have done some shoddy research. I was like, yeah, I want to apply to this school because there's no mallets on the requirement list. I think it's just drums. And he's like, no, I don't think so. So uh, I started mallets later in my high school career, but I always loved drum set. I played in all the musicals in school. It was just a, a, a safe place to be and a lot of cool people, just a, the community of it I really enjoyed. So when I got to school is when I really started digging into the orchestral and classical side of, of percussion. Who was your way in on the drum set side? When I was in school studying before college, a teacher's name was Al Konikowski, who actually taught at Warwick schools. He was a music teacher there. But uh, he was a great drum set teacher and just, I remember I'd get into a lesson, he'd put some headphones on like this, we'd play along with some Buddy Rich or we'd trade fours and just a lot of listening. And a lot of what he did in my lessons back then, I'll try to, to give to my students now because it was such an important part of my, my development as a percussionist, just playing with a pro, playing with, with someone and, and having to keep up is I think a, a cool thing I, I'll, I'll take from those. Got it. Well, who were you listening to at that point? At the time, I was uh, really into like punk rock. I still am. I love punk rock. Okay. I, I and the Who. I I don't know why I fell in love with the Who, but man, I could still I could put on any Who album. I could sing all the lyrics. I can play all. The, Keith Moon keeping up with him sometimes was was tough. So I kind of made my own stuff up. But uh, sure. I I just I would get home from school, put on my headphones, and play along to the Who, and then jump over to like Lincoln Park. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, I mean. You get this like I mean the thing that's awesome about Keith Moon is, is it's everything's a drum fill. It's just yeah, it's just you're just drum filling the whole time. Yeah, that's what I think. Why I loved it, I, just, I was just I get to go crazy. Yeah. And then in lessons, you know, we we do the Buddy Rich, but I never really appreciated that at the time. I like playing along to it, but it took me a little while as I developed, matured to appreciate what I was taking from those lessons. But uh, in my own time, I listened just to you know the Who and pretty much any punk rock. Or 90s band. So like Blink-182 and yeah, yeah. stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, I love Blink-182 as well. And I'll, I'll always, when I, uh, I'm doing drum set with my students, uh, sometimes people aren't the biggest fans of Travis Barker, but like... He's really good. His grooves are great. <laughs> yeah. And he made a living off it. And yeah. I, I, I love his grooves. I, I, uh, I still, I'll still play along to a little Blink-182 when I, when I can. So how does it end up that you are starting to, that you go to New York City to start taking lessons? Yeah, so that started um, when I started studying in, at Potsdam. So SUNY Potsdam, my percussion professor there was Jim Peterzak, and, and I call him JP. And JP... Hopefully you're not the only one who does that. Yeah. Right? Hopefully he's, he allows you to do it. Yeah, yeah, everyone. Everyone calls him JP. Okay. <laughs> he's, uh, he's a great guy, great educator, fantastic musician. I owe him so much to, to my development as a percussionist. And uh, as I was studying there, I kept pushing myself, pushing myself. It was like, And I would go home for breaks and then student taught. And I, I, I just wanted more. So he introduced me to percussionist Sean Rittenauer. And Sean is phenomenal. I have so much respect. I, ad I admire him, everything he does. He's, he's putting out these videos now too. And he really really helped me out a lot as well. So I'm very fortunate to have JP. How so? Me. So Sean, I'll never forget this. And Sean, I'll have to I'll have to tell you to listen. But I remember my first lesson with Sean. I, at the time, was playing. I, I played for him Virginia Tate. Nice. And I thought I was playing it really well. Mm -hmm. And uh, he gets, and I get to him. I was uh, just ending my freshman year of college. I'm like, yeah, I want to, I want to go. I was already, already thinking ahead to the future. I'm like, I want to go to these schools for my master's degree. So I played for him. He's like, 
It's like, no, you're not, you're not ready for those schools. He's like, we got a lot of work to do. And I just remember taking that and really using it to, to help me push forward. And, but Sean, as a teacher, he was, I learned a lot from him as well. And he would demonstrate everything so clearly. And before I would leave the lesson that day, he would make sure I could do it. Like he would, maybe not perfectly, maybe he'd know, like he'd give me what to work on, but he showed me everything that I needed to do to get, to get things right. And if I pursued that and I went home and practiced, then I knew I was on a very good path for success. So if you're unfamiliar, if you're listening with Sean Rittenauer, check him out. He is just world class, man. He's, he's a great guy. And I haven't, I have, I got to give him a call. It's been a while since I talked with him. Yeah. Well, I think you're, what you're, you're underselling is like, it probably crushed you to hear what he said. And I tell you, driving home on the GW bridge that day, I'm like, man, I got to focus, but I'm like, it did, it did. It was, it was crushing, but what I think is important, but also for me, for me to remember as a teacher, I was ready for that. And I could, I was able to take that and, and turn it into a really a mindset that's going to propel me forward. And I think Sean, Sean knew that as well. He knew I was there to, I wouldn't have been there if it, if it wasn't, if I wasn't ready to take that next, next step. I can't say that to anybody though, because right. you could crush them and then they're never going to come back. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, tell me a little bit more about the, the high school experience in, in percussion. What was yeah, it was just a, a lot of drum set. My brother, as I said, I'm a twin. We played everything together. All my friends were in band. So we'd, I'd, I'd have some friends come over. We'd play some like garage band things on set. Uh, guitar and, and bass, um, and it was just a a good place to be. I, I spent most of my day in the band room, as I think a lot of I, a lot of musicians we can relate. Thinking back to skipping class or skipping this to oh, I have a lesson. Do you really have a lesson? Probably not. But I'm going to go and play play music instead. So it was a just a positive space to be in, making music, and it, making music is great. And I think hopefully I. I was I was able to realize that then, even if it was a piece I wasn't quite enjoying, how lucky I was to be in a music program where I could play music every day. And I I looked I woke up looking forward to that. It was the one of the parts of school that I didn't really dread going to. And I was I my my father for a while too was my principal, so I had to, you know, I couldn't slack off. But it was a place where I can go to escape and made me as cheesy as it sounds made me who I am today. But yeah, I was able to open up. When you were in high school, were you doing anything else? Were you in sports, student government, church? I played activity? soccer, a lot of soccer. Uh, I was always involved with like the NHS, like that. At, at the end, I was involved in a lot of a lot of clubs, but mainly I'd come home, play set, do whatever I had to do, homework, and then play video games, which pretty much out went every day for like four years in high school. Hey, what game? What were your favorite games? Oh, I would say at the time. It was when it, and I was just I was just listening to something about this the other day. But at, it must have just come out when I was starting high school. But me, I lived in an awesome neighborhood. Everyone was my age, and we played this game called World of Warcraft. Mm-hmm. Which, when I say that now, my girlfriend would roll her eyes at me. But she, she it was great. We get we played music. I'd practice drum set, do whatever I had to do, and then we would all get online. We'd ride our bikes or whatever, and then we get online and hang out there. So that was my my childhood, and I was really serious about music then i enjoyed it i and i wish i could go back sometimes to how i felt about music then i was never like gotta gotta learn all these notes gotta do this gotta do this and i see my students excited about music that way 
where they're not worried about performing the next week of or playing con variations on a recital. That's so great. And I wish that for everybody where they can just be in that state and enjoy playing music because that's what it's all about. And I try to remind myself that every week, like, man, it's just playing music. It's great. It doesn't have to be perfect. It's great to play it. So where did you go for undergrad again? The Crane School of Music at SUNY Potsdam. Right, okay. So right, man, all the way up there. How did you find that program? My band teacher in school was from Crane, and I really liked my band teacher. So I said, well, I want to be just like him. I was dead set on Crane. I didn't even look anywhere else. I'm like, Crane, that's it. So it, it fortunately worked out. <laughs> that's and, and I didn't know about any, I didn't even know about Eastman. I didn't know about what level students were playing at. I just knew my own bubble. I knew that Crane was a great school, so I had to I had to go there. I ended up being there four years. Great school, great faculty, great students, and uh, they prepared me to be, well, the, the program prepared me to be a, a great educator and give me the tools I needed to be successful, and uh, JP prepared me to be a professional, really. He, he taught me a lot about the professional world, which I'm very grateful for. And, and then he sent me to, he actually introduced me to Mike Burrett. He, uh, I was playing out, I'd, I'd been sitting with Sean, sitting with JP my sophomore year, and, and Michael, uh, MJB, he came in to give a master class, and I was playing Del Clouse at the time. I wasn't playing on the on the class. I'm sitting in the back of the hall, and, and JP comes up behind me, goes, hey, you're playing Del Clouse today. I'm like, what? I don't even have any sticks. So I wouldn't play for Burrett, and it, it went very well, and I, I kept in contact with him, and, and pretty much, like I was said on Crane, after working with, with Burrett, I was pretty much, uh, no doubt in my mind, I wanted to, to study with him for my master's. What were some of the, because you mentioned this, what were some of the professional things about being a percussionist that yeah. Jim taught you? At the time when I was a student, I didn't realize those professional gems that he was putting in, in my head. And I think when you're in music school, you just think what being a professional is, is is winning the audition or playing all the notes right. But it's much more than that. And like, for example, one thing that I always take away from, from JP and, and, and give to my students is at the end of a rehearsal, if you're done packing up and another percussionist still has a big setup, go help them. They get home earlier. They remember that. After every concert, if, if you're meeting someone for the first time, you don't know them, still go up to them at the end and say, hey, great playing with you or nice roles, something like that. And, and being professional and, and keeping relationships because it might seem obvious to my and, and it, looking back at it it's it's not obvious I remember people still packing up and leaving when they can give someone a hand and for the professional side of things you'll never know that person might be sitting on the other side of an interview and audition one day and they might say hey I remember he complimented me or she complimented me on my paradiddle I like that that that's someone I want to work with um, that's a that's a big part of, of being professional you know it's not just about the notes because i'll tell you i've i've encountered a lot of people who can play a lot of notes very well but would i want to work with them on a daily basis probably not because there's been some interaction that just isn't or you don't want to work with uh, also just being being prepared have keeping everything organized all of that that sometimes you can forget about in a practice room you know the helping pack thing is a is a is also a good indicator I think of personality. I mean, I feel like for the most part, that's we. It's not as a huge problem. Uh, maybe I'm maybe I'm thinking of it more rose colored, but it, I I feel like we all know that it's yeah. a pain in the butt. And 
Yeah, yeah. It's part of the job, part of being a percussionist. That's right. I, I hadn't thought about, you know, I, next time I will definitely tell the tell the person who's like, really good horse whips on a... On, <laughs> um, Play ride. Jeez, I, I can't believe I blew my own joke there. Yeah, you know, uh, I had a student say this to me once. He's like, "What if, what if I don't like anything they were doing?" I was like, "Well, tell them you like their shoes or something. Mm-hmm. You know, be nice to them. Say, yeah. hey, it was, or just say it's nice playing with you. Nice making music with you." Yeah. Or you could you could be really vague. You'd be like, "I like it. you did the thing with the mallets and stuff. That was cool." Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Just don't, yeah, just don't be very specific. At the crane, what other, either ensembles, was there any, is, is there a marching band there? There's uh, not. Okay. So like what were, what were the other options for performing that are up there? Crane was great in my development because I went in as a drum set player. But while I was there, I got to play Latin music, jazz music, played in the orchestra, played in the wind ensemble, played in the new music ensemble. So although we didn't have a marching band and I didn't have any, any real marching band experience growing up, I got to be exposed to everything. Um, and it made me, you know, as a, as a, a undergraduate student, it's great to find a program where you can experience just about everything there is that could be a potential outlet for you to make music or pursue as a career. So I got to play just about every style and experience every style. And some I said, yeah, not for me, but I really fell in love with the orchestra and and the wind ensemble, but going to orchestra rehearsals, I'm glad. I, and, and I didn't have to wait. Like some schools, you have to do an audition to get into the best orchestra. We had we had one orchestra. I got to play in it right away, which was a benefit of, of going to a school like that. And I fell in love with it there. And that's one grateful thing looking back on, too. I got to experience just about every little part of percussion to help me become a well-rounded percussionist and going on to the next step in my career, being able to focus a little bit more on what I really enjoyed working on. What kind of lit were you playing um, ensemble-wise? Uh, so undergrad was great, man. Peter Zach, he was. I learned a lot from him, and I'll still call him to pick his brain about percussion ensemble pieces. We played a lot of this. We always we did the Chavez Takata, Miller Prelude, a lot of Del Borgo Preludio, which is one of my favorite pieces for percussion ensemble. Uh, a lot of just the the classic. We did the Verez ionization. We did ballet mechanique. He really exposed us to some of the great early percussion ensemble literature. That was out there, and I, I, I use it now with my students, and I'm educated on it. And sometimes some music programs might not might forget about all those classic pieces. And um, it, it, actually, fun, fun, funny story: when I was a, a student at Eastman, I took a class with John Beck, the history of percussion, and uh, I sat down with him one day, and we went through all of the the. Uh, the great percussion ensemble piece. And I'm like, oh yeah, I played that with JP. I played that, I played that. And I called him that day. I'm like, hey man, you really, you programmed some great music back then. Um, we did a lot of Cade, we did construction, hair, a lot of Lou Harrison. So a lot of the, the staple important percussion ensemble rep. And at the time, a lot of it I didn't really quite understand, but looking back, I'm glad I played it when I, when I did. It was all brand new. So it was like, there was no, no real precedent for it. And it was also fitting in with all of the, you know, postmodern like items. And, and so it was like, it, it ends up fitting in exactly with what the, what those composers were. And, you know, there's that sound of that early percussion ensemble music. There's a sound, just the, the way they were thinking and writing back then. That's different. You don't really get that sound so much today. Like if you think of 
of like some of the well, Harrison and Cage are, are kind of two of their own, but just this early music, thinking the Malloy Miller prelude, and it's just a sound to it. I love that sound. It's like just percussion, you know. No, no, but no uh, ex extended techniques quite yet, or maybe at the time they were extended techniques. But I think everyone will know what I mean when I say that. Just it's like wholesome percussion music. Not a lot of. Uh scales being played at quarter note equals 200 just over and over and over again as a, as an underlying f sound. Right. <laughs> and I find like too, look, studying these pieces now space, like there's space yeah. in it. Yeah. Which is, we forget about sometimes too. Yeah. The running joke, you know, uh, Megan Arns, I, I'm yes. really sure. So, and her office is literally like right, right there. Oh, cool. Uh, every time, because she does, she does a ton with new music, and every time that I, that I see her, and she's work, she's in the midst of something. I'm, I always, the joke is always a lot. Is there a lot of notes? And she's like, oh my god, so many notes, and it, and it's like, but like, and it, literally, like I've said that to many, like that's the running thing now. It's just like uh, so many notes right now. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, that's why I uh, I like the older stuff better. <laughs> I don't want to play as many notes. <laughs> Yeah. Who has time to play all those notes? Yeah. One thing that sticks with me. So John Parks, mm -hmm. we don't really know each other. He, I went to a class of his, and I remember someone asked him when he finds the time to practice, and he, like, said 20 years ago when he graduated school. <laughs> yes. I remember that just sticks in the back of my head. I'm like, man, he was so – like, 20, obviously not 20 years for me, but he was right. My time to practice was when I was, when I was in school because between the fill, the teaching, mm -hmm. and balancing my life, not a lot – not a whole lot of time. Yeah. That's a perfect answer. <laughs> well, we tell this to, I mean, you know, this would, because, you know, you're a relatively recent master's graduate. When I've seen, when I talk to the master's students here, I'm just like, your job is to practice. You have like two classes, you know, you, you don't have a lot of, you, all your responsibilities are, are solo and ensemble and chamber. So yeah. that's your job. Yeah. And that was my job. <laughs> and that's like <laughs> at that time. Yeah, and I tell that to my, my college students now. Like, if you're not in a practice room a majority of your day, you, you're going to put yourself – you're going to do yourself a disservice preparing for the future. Yeah. You've got to be got to be ready to play, play what comes your way. And I wouldn't be surprised if John Parks' comment was uh, 20 effing years ago because it, it was John Parks. <laughs> but when, when, I, when, when I interviewed him, he, like, cursed right away, and I was like, all right. <laughs> yeah he, he was like i think i even said this one's this one actually needs the e rating <laughs> you did ed underground yes underground. Okay. yep i didn't even know performance was a thing to be honest like i didn't know that was something you could major in i just was so narrow-minded when i was younger uh, that i just said ed did uh did crane have a, a performance underground or no they did have a performance undergrad and I don't know why I never made the choice to add that on, but I, I would I was still getting the same opportunities as a performance major. I think I just said, why would I, why would I want to pay a little extra for something I'm already doing? I could create myself. You know, I think in the best programs, that the, that the ed part there's no there's no like there's you get pushed this the exact same amount you would if you were a performance major. Right. You're just having a lot more classroom stuff that you have to do. I and it's, I, I have students say that, ask me that all the time, like, should I add the performance? And a lot of times I'll just say, you know, 
if you'd like to, yes, I'll support that 100%. But you also, it's a mindset as well. Like if you're looking to get an ed degree and you also want to do performance and they might not offer performance, like, oh, I don't know if I want to go to that school because they, they won't let me double major in this or they don't have this option. You have to be in a mindset. If you want to be a performer, you can create that environment for yourself wherever you end up. Yeah. Yeah, very true. At what point did you, because you said you had met Byrd already. So at what point did you decide, I'm going to go do my master's and or were you already thinking, maybe I'll, I'll teach for a bit and then I'll do it? Yeah, I, I had just actually finished student teaching um, my, last, my second to last semester at school. And I didn't know at the time I was preparing for auditions, but there was still a part in the back of my head, like I wasn't, I hadn't been going to a conservatory. I wasn't necessarily around 24-7 performance majors, knowing what that environment is like. So I didn't really 100% know what my competition was going to be like. I just knew I was working the hardest. I was listening to my teachers and trusted them. So I had some interviews lined up for public school teaching that I was excited about. And I did my master's degree uh, auditions. And uh, I'm very grateful that Eastman worked out. It's been, it was a, a great two years with, with uh, Mike, and it's been a great five years here. Yeah. Okay, so obviously it's a master's program. It, and it's a conservative. I mean, it's, 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 a different, it's a different level. I mean, I think we, it's safe to say that, and I've talked to enough Eastman students over the years to know that not only when you go to a place like Eastman are you getting everything from the teachers, but the other students are also just, you know, comets that you're having, you're interacting with. So, yeah. you know, in what ways is it a different experience being at Eastman? It's fast. It's a fast pace. You got to keep up. And I think you'll see not, not, I'm not necessarily talking about percussion, but it's not for everybody because yeah. it's so demanding, but that level of, of expectation um, expected of the students assures that they are successful in the future, which is very important. And if you're not on board with that, then you, you need to you need to understand that it might not be the environment for you. And but that's exactly what the music world demands. Like you have to you have to push yourself. So on top of studying with MJB every week, I got to for my my first year there. I overlap with Andrea. So imagine hearing her play in master class. Yeah. Hearing Hannah Weaver. At, Grant Blackard, you know, Connor Stevens, Cameron mm -hmm. Leach, you're just put on, and fortunately, they're all great people, so yeah. there was never any, like, like, oh my goodness, but there's always part, and everyone's like, oh man, they sound great, I gotta, I gotta go practice, you know, yeah. so it's a great, uh, and that's, that might not be everywhere either, I'm not sure, but at Eastman, that Burrett really pushes for is a family-like environment in the studio. Yeah. Every you got you have to be a good person and support one another and it really is clear there and everyone just grows from it which is great but it's fast man a lot of notes mm -hmm. a lot of notes <laughs> um and you have to be responsible you can't you can't let things go to the to the side or else it's going to slowly just eat you up yeah what was similar or different in teaching styles from Peter's act to Burrett? um i would say they're Teaching styles, I think, different, but both amazing educators. And let me, I'll tell you about MJB now. World-class performer, world-class educator. What I learned about teaching from, from Burrett is honesty is very important. Now, 
I think in a in natural educator, it's like, yeah, of course, why would you lie to your students? And I'm not meaning like lying to your students, but honesty, saying right away, if it's something doesn't sound good, you got to let somebody know, especially at that level. But on top of that, so you combined honesty with teaching passion and, and thoroughness, he will make sure if something doesn't sound good, he's going to let you know. But more importantly, he will show you how to fix it. Similar to Sean, he will not, he'll make sure before you leave your lesson that day, you know how to fix it. And he will, he will push you on it and make sure you get it, which is so important because it's not like, oh, we'll wait till next week to fix it. And uh, it, it was always a treat. Like in his studio, there are two marimbas. So when we're working on marimba ref, he'll play something back. And that honesty is just something that's so, maybe not everyone values as much as I did, but it's exactly what it makes an amazing teacher, in my opinion. And showing a student how to do it and that they understand it. Because sometimes a student can understand, can play something like, oh, play it like this. But if they don't understand it, that's th then they might not be able to replicate it. So Burrett, make sure you understand it. You understand the concept as well, which is so important. And that's why a lot of his students, when they go off to teach, they're also great educators is because they understand, they remember that measure in, in time for marimba or, you know, whatever, con variations. And they understand it rather than just being able to play it. So that's, that's my biggest takeaway. As there are so many other great things about Michael Burrett and his teaching and his performing, but that sticks with me the most and something I will I give to my students hopefully every every lesson as well even though I'm working with a much different age level the language is different but yeah well I mean that also gets back into whether a student is able to accept when it's not good and hearing the truth right and knowing that they and knowing that that student can handle like you've said before like you could handle um, being told that this was not good enough at this point. Right. And I'm sure for all the teachers listening out there, there, you're gonna, there are students that will disagree with you, right? Like, it's just students. And I get it sometimes too. But if you're at school studying with a teacher and you're disagreeing with them, that's, that's not fair to you or the teacher because you're there to study with them. And just as a mindset, I'll tell my students like, hey, you might not agree with this now, but you got to save it. And you got to remember it because you might use this again, maybe not for this piece, but it might come back and, and you might use it to be more successful later on in the future. So especially with percussion, man, there's so many ways to do one thing. Like I'll, I'll, I remember going for timpani lessons when I was taking, doing mock auditions. I go to a bunch of different timpanists when I was preparing for my master's. And they'd all say, oh, you got to fix your grip, got to fix your grip, got to fix your grip. So I took like six lessons, and every lesson was, oh, I got to fix my grip. But none of that really would uh, affected the music so much. So just take take each one of those, pick one you like, but never discredit anything. Keep it and, and use it. Like a being greedy with your education, take everything and learn from it in some way, shape, or form. And unfortunately, there's there's some people that don't think that way and say, no, I don't agree with that. I'm not going to do that. And I, it doesn't help them. I'll just, I'll leave it at that. Yeah. To kind of allude to next point here is, is that, I mean, one of the things that we know about Michael Byrd is that he's constantly playing and he's constantly doing new things. And, and I, what's it like, what was it like for you to see him and know that he is like, you know, that he's like 24 seven, ready to go with the performance if he needs to be yeah, like what was seeing that part of it like it's inspiring man it's 
it's what I work for myself these days. Like if I'm, I'm constantly writing now for myself, for other, for my peers, um, just that level. And, and some people might not be able to do that, do that schedule. But if you look at Burt and his success, he's, he's been doing everything to get there and it's just inspiring. You, if you're around that, it, it rubs off on you, you know? What were the, what, for the masters, were you like, there's, there's, is there just like one recital that is required? Yes. And then did you do other ones too, because you had studied a, a ton of lit and could? Yeah, I actually ended up doing a lot of chamber music. I joined just about my first year. I joined just about every group where I could perform. And I had like three to four performances a week on top of everything else. So my second semester, I, I, I cut back on that just a little bit so I could put more time in preparing for orchestral auditions if I had to. But uh, I did just the one main recital. Uh, didn't do any other solo recitals after that. I wasn't so I did all the solo rep, but I wasn't so much into the solo recitals at the time. I, I liked making music with others, so I did a lot more of the chamber uh, while I was there. But there are some people who do a lot more recitals than just the one, and some like me who just did the one, but were playing concerts constantly which is something that you'll only get in that environment you can't really even expect that after you graduate which is a can be a shock for some people like once you graduate music school what do you do like it's a totally you're not getting that feedback constantly it's different there's a point i think when you get to um where like it could be a, a master's degree can be an extension of the undergrad and then there's a point where it's no, you have to be, it is entirely self-directed. And, and that gets more pronounced if you do, do decide to do a doctorate. Like, sure, that's a different, it goes into a different level of, of it being your thing only at that point. Just uh, always staying professional. Like as your master's degree, I remember always thinking when I first started, all right, I got to, I'm preparing now for my life, my career. I have to, I have to be focused. Yeah. At what point during when you're doing the masters did did you realize that that options to either stay around and no when you were finishing up your masters was one of the things also to try to get into a doctorate program or not yet You know to be honest I had no idea what I wanted to do And I well and I I'll explain it like this like I guess that's not the best way I could phrase it I didn't know what I wanted to do because I had a lot of options I was content, not content, I was excited to, to, to go teach, even teaching public school, high school. I was excited for that. And it was weird. My last couple months at Eastman, I had uh, three orchestral auditions I, I was booked to, to go do. I had the ECMS job and I had two public school interviews to go do. And I remember talking with my father. He's like, what do you want to do? I'm like, honestly, I'd be happy with any of this right now. Like, this is all exciting for me. And I think it worked out so nice where where I'm at now. I teach and perform. Both worlds kind of met together, and it's 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 everything I wanted to do combined into one. Which I wake up every morning and just like, wow, I can't believe this is where it ended up. This is great. All right, Kyle, I'll finish up with a segment called Random Ask Questions. Yeah. First question. Uh, an issue in percussion education or percussion performance that most gets under your skin or drives you the most nuts? I guess this might not, this, this is the one that comes up most often 
and maybe it's not so much percussion education, but choosing rep by, and, and this is something that I guess on the higher level of percussion education, playing rep by percussionist composers and non-percussionist composers. Mm-hmm. And every time that argument comes up, I really don't want to have it. it um, it's art. Wait, wait, what's the, tell, I mean, I think I know what you're talking about, but you're going to have to explain the argument before we yeah. get further. There's a mindset where some discredit percussion music by percussion composers where like it's not as it's not as sophisticated maybe that's the word than someone who's a non-percussionist sure whatever and that that i have that even my students will ask me that and to me art is art if if it's art you like and something you're excited about learning and you're going to grow from it or you want to perform do it it's like pottery i really like pottery i don't make pottery myself but it's like okay, I'm a painter, but I made this pottery. I made this dish. Here, buy it. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I do pottery for a living. Here's my dish. And is someone going to pick the dish by the non-pottery person because they're not, a, I don't know. Hey. If something has artistic value to it, then do it. And I try not to be so narrowed in like that. And I, I, I find like a lot of us spend so much time talking about it. If it's, if it's good for you, every, it's all objective art. So, yeah. Yeah. I guess that's that's the one that comes to my mind that I never like having that conversation. It gets me a little bit angered that we're <laughs> trying to limit ourselves as percussionists already. Mm-hmm. That house. So, yeah, I'll leave it at that. Yeah. Well, you know, an easy response to that is um you know who else uh performed their own music? Ludwig van Beethoven. Yeah, I know. <laughs> right. Exactly. So and I think is this music's pretty good, right? Yeah, okay. it's done well. Mm-hmm. So anyway, there's yeah, it's lots of lots of resp- lots of good good ways to respond to that. Yeah, yeah. All right, uh, another question: Has anyone ever nailed an impression of you, and if so, how'd they do it? Oh, a lot of people. I, I, uh, I'm tr- I'm trying to get better at it, but I was like, yeah, man, like always at the end of things. So everyone's yeah. always like, hey, call, yeah, man. <laughs> A lot of people. I'd say a lot of people have nailed impressions of me by just. That's good. Yeah. That sounds like I got to be honest. That sounds like something Hannah Weaver would do. (laughs) I'm sure she's done that. Yeah. And funny, it's uh, during my my students during percussion ensemble. Sometimes, like when something goes well, they'll just be like, "Yeah, man, yeah." (laughs) Like, okay, I guess I, I guess I see it. (laughs) Yeah. Nice. (laughs) All right. What is one skill that you have that is not at all marketable, but you're an all-time great at? debatable if it's marketable but patience okay i have a lot of patience for a lot of things not just for work so uh i think patience cool that's that's good yeah i mean i fished my 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 father took me fishing when i was young and, and learned to to be patient especially now more than ever man that uh patience is key not necessarily going to get you a job, but it'll help when you do get a job. Yeah, definitely true. All right. What is a great movie and what is a terrible movie? Oh, hands down. My favorite, I'll say favorite movies ever, the Lord of the Rings. Um, especially the, the battle at the end of the two towers, just that's like a masterpiece of pacing and and cinematography. And, uh, those are great because they, Every time I watch them, I watch them a lot. You get sucked in and you forget about, like you're able to just immerse yourself in the world 100% and 
and uh, just even listening to the music now, it's, it's played such a part of my life growing up. Like when I was, I was in high school when the, those movies came out. It's just a great movie. You can escape. Bad movie. There are some really bad horror movies. You know? Yeah, there are. <laughs> I tend to actually, Pete, like whenever I watch a movie now, I go to the, the reviews mm-hmm. and we'll read those first to try to avoid bad movies. Because I, I try to watch movies maybe once a month with my girlfriend so we can just relax and watch something together. And you're not going to do a bad one if you, if you have that opportunity. Yeah. Like Rotten Tomatoes, I got that like number one app on my phone. Rotten Tomatoes, <laughs> check out the critic score, check out the audience score. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I'll, I, I'll have to, I'm sure I'll think of one, but I guess any movie that isn't believable. Oh, you know what? I'll say this though. If they remake a movie or a book that has a, a like a super popular actor playing a character that I had an image of in my brain, that to me, I don't really, I can't get immersed into. It's like, that's, that's Tom Cruise. That's not this person, you know? Intr- what is there one of, is there like a, something even in, just in the past where you're like, the Marvel movies, like I, sure. I have a hard time watching those because Mark Ruffalo, like I see him as Mark Ruffalo. <laughs> Why is Mark Ruffalo playing all? <laughs> yeah, right. And I think younger kids, they don't know them. They know them as he. They know them as the Hulk, like Mark Ruffalo's right, yeah. Hulk. That they don't know Mark Ruffalo, but like it's weird, like seeing uh, those Scarlett Johansson, Mark Ruffalo, those guys playing superheroes. I just never could. Chris Pratt, and it's just weird because I saw Chris Pratt on Parks and Rec. Yeah, he's he's that guy. He's Andy, what Andy? Is it? Wait, yeah, what was? Yeah. yeah, that's a show that my um, that's my wife's go-to. Like, I just need a, I just need to laugh. Oh, yeah, and it's funny. It's, it's so good. Yeah, and and it's not, it's not mean. It's just, it's right. just funny. It's good humor. Yeah, it's yeah. not. Yeah, except for except for what they do to to Jerry, <laughs> but that's like that's just like a part of the. That's like a whole thing. It's its own thing. We all understand what it is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Is, okay, so I can transition from that to I'm I'm maybe I'm guessing on this, but what is a favorite book? I think right right now my favorite book, and I'll say book series, is the Witcher series. Oh, okay. Uh, really love those, and I really I got introduced to it about a year ago, and I picked up the first book and just man couldn't put it down. I love the fantasy, the the medieval. Well, I I thought you were gonna say Lord of the Rings here. Well, I yeah. Well, I would say Lord of the Rings as a favorite book. I've read mm-hmm. those, and they are they're great. But The Witcher is one recently that just got that excitement going again. It's it's an immersive world as well, and it's I love when I could pick up a book and forget about life for a moment. I'll, I'll put a side note. Another great book. It's part of a series. I haven't read the other two, but it's No Country for Old Gnomes. I think it's the <laughs> okay. That now. And it's it's hilarious. It's silly. Obviously, yeah. it's not. It's, a, it's like some substantial piece of literature, but it's funny, man. It's that's good. Yeah, because you grew up in the tri-state area. Do you have a sports fandom? Not really. Not anymore. Okay. Um, I for whatever. I just I guess being in Jersey, I, I got a lot of Philadelphia Eagles, and. Uh, I, I lo- loved the Eagles when I was younger. Oh, okay. Uh, but I have to say, Pete, I, I I get disappointed a lot, and I don't like watching sports and getting disappointed. Well, definitely don't watch New York sports right now because right. that's, that's yeah. <laughs> And I found, like, man, I, I, I like watching, but if I got my expectations up for a team and I was like, oh, geez. 
So I'll say I always, whenever I'm watching, I'll support the Jets, the Giants, mm-hmm. the Bills now because that's where I'm living. But uh, they're actually like, good. Do, like they got a real yeah, shot. No, they're doing great. <laughs> yeah, I go into sports now just open minded and just like watching a good game. But no, but no, no team or not anymore. That, okay, not anymore. The Eagles in my past, but yeah. Nice. Well, that's interesting considering. That's the that's a Giants fan's least favorite I team. I know. I think it was like young me was like, yeah, I'm going to show these Giants fans. Oh, yeah. Well, they need to be shown up. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have a go-to karaoke song? Oh. Well, I, w- I don't think I would ever do karaoke anymore. But Uh-oh. I guess at home, I my go-to karaoke is like whatever. Now I'm especially after his passing Sondheim when he passed away, mm-hmm. I started listening to a lot of his musicals. And right now, at least this week, the uh, music from Company, the Broadway original mm-hmm. cast I was listening to, I've been singing a lot of Company this week. So if there was a karaoke with some Company tunes, uh, tunes from Company, that's probably my go-to right now. Especially another the one tune, it's Another 100 People, I think it's called. That's great. I just started, I, and I hadn't known Company before. I, started, wait, wait. I watched it after uh-huh. I learned about Sondheim's passing. So it's a great tune and it's about New York city and it's, man, it's so great. What was the, I think you cut out there again. What was the name of the song? Uh, Another hundred people. Okay. And it's from the company Broadway company, uh, the the show's called company. Yeah. Yeah. Worst job growing up. I worked at a grocery store stocking shelves. And during the summers I worked three 30 to midnight, six days a week. I don't even know if that was legal. That's a long time. My boss, man, he was so rotten. And he just would make life miserable. Just look for things to get on my nerves, I felt like. And I was doing everything right. But he would just give me the the worst tasks to do. I just didn't like it. But I had to. I I did it anyways. But, man, that was. I learned how not to treat people from that. That's an important lesson for sure. Your biggest kitchen mess up. I really love cooking. Me and my girlfriend, we cook a lot. And one night she's like, hey, I want orange chicken. Let's cook orange chicken. Mm-hmm. So I got like one of the recipes from online and she had a meeting or something. She's like, hey, I'm not going to be able to help you cook tonight. I'm going to come home late. And man, did I mess up this orange chicken. There was oil splattering everywhere. I will, and it was so bad, Pete. I will not eat orange chicken again. I'm never, I probably am, am scarred. Uh, I just remember putting like the first piece of chicken in the oil. I don't know if it was too hot, but all over the walls, smoke, the, the smoke detector was going off. It was a nightmare. <laughs> so I have not eaten uh, orange chicken, I think, in three years now. <laughs> but you don't, bl- you shouldn't blame other. Other uh, restaurants or chicken on your mistakes. I know. Maybe tonight. Maybe I'll I'll pick some up on the way home and like break that uh, trauma. (laughs) (laughs) All right. What is your best non-life-threatening injury? I used to bike a lot, and Mm -hmm. there is growing up. There is this like little dip at the end of our our uh, my driveway growing up, and I remember with all my buddies like, hey. I'm going to see if I could like jump over this and, and do like a, a kick, you know, wheelie. And I was zooming down the hill and I got freaked out and I hit just my front brake and flew over my handlebars. And just for like two weeks, my, I thought I, 
I probably, who knows, messed up my wrist, but that was in bad shape for about two weeks after that. And uh, I'll never do anything like that on a bike again, that's for sure. <laughs> I guess I'm learning now talking to you, Pete. At least I'm learning from my past experience. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's good. I mean, I mean, do you like, if you've seen that hill recently, are you just like, Oh yeah, I'll close my eyes when I go back. <laughs> <laughs> I don't need just bad memories just looking at it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Gotcha. All right. Where is somewhere that you have not traveled to that you still want to get to? Oh, hands down New Zealand. Mm. I want to visit Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. And that's uh it's on our list. So once things get safe to you know, when things are back to normal travel wise, safe to travel, definitely love to go and see that. I'm sure – is there like a whole industry of just like this is where this was filmed and all that like oh, – yeah. okay. Yeah, you can tour a lot of it too. So that's definitely on the list. And right now my girlfriend, I, I have her – I still have to show her the last movie. She can't get through them, which is fine. I'm not going to like try to force it on her, but uh, she's got to finish it. So <laughs> she listens to this and she gets to this, this spot. We got one movie left. <laughs> <laughs> it's beautiful there, man. Like, yeah. I she always wants to go to a beach or be, like, let's go to a beach. I've been to plenty of beaches. Mm-hmm. Not that they're not beautiful, but I want to see something different. Yeah, no, that's a good idea. Strangest, funniest, or most bizarre performance moment that involves you? There, there have been a few along the way. I'm trying to think which which one comes up. I, I remember we were doing this when I was a guest guest percussionist. Um, I was teaching at a summer program and they had a wind ensemble and I, they asked for me to fill in. So I was playing and I was playing this vibraphone, like multi-percussion setup. So vibraphone, suspended cymbal, but drums. And they gave me the suspended cymbal right before the show started because one of the other percussionists wanted the one I was using and I didn't mind. I was the guest. So I was said, yeah, take your cymbal. So he gave me this other one. And as I was playing the vibes, I remember seeing the, the, the strap of the suspended cymbal loosening just ever so slightly. I'm like, Oh, I don't like this. So I was playing it lightly and I'm playing the vibes and all of a sudden the symbol comes down and falls right on the vibes during the performance. And and we were in front of the stage, the, like right on the edge of the stage. Everyone could sit. So that one, one sticks, that one first one that comes to mind. So that's been, a, it was a strange experience. It happened all last minute. So, so did you, did you stop? Like, what did you just be like, yeah. Oh, who knew? Right. I mean, what, how did you even react to it? Yeah, I had a trap table there, and I just picked the symbol up and on the trap table and just went back into it. Tried to make not a big deal of it, but when a conductor makes a big deal of it, it's hard not to. Right. All right, and uh, last question, Kyle. What one piece of art, music, movies, books, podcasts, YouTube clips, theater, visual arts, poetry, anything like that, what one piece of art has impacted you the most recently? Back to Sondheim, his uh, show Sunday in the Park with George. I mm. own the music. Uh, but I was able to rent the original Broadway production performance, and man, Bernadette really, Peters and uh, um, Criminal Minds, Mandy. Oh, uh, Mandy Patinkin, yeah, yeah. Uh, it was great. I was so just blown away by the music, the story, and I love when a piece of non-percussive art can inspire me to want to go play percussion. And that, after watching that, I just got I got to the marimba, went to my piano, started playing, and. And I got the score actually from the Eastman Library and studied the music and just, man, I fell in love with that show. It's great. Yeah, that's a I I've been I fortunately got to play that years and years ago, oh, cool. and it's it's a hard show, but yeah. it's 
I mean, all of his shows are hard, but yeah. but it, it's it's a lot of fun. And the, yeah, the music is and particularly. I love the opening oh, tune. It's great. Yeah. So yeah, Sondheim's music is cool. I wish, like uh, he uh, he wrote some percussion. I know it would would never, but he would have been a great percussion writer. He's got these awesome grooves that are not your straightforward grooves. You listen to it's like, wow, this is this is interesting. But man, it, it's it's really groovy. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. It puts it, it's put together really well. Like you front like, oh wait, this is kind of it's like a little bit of a it's a little bit of feel here and I have no idea how how he created this. Yeah. Kind of yeah. And you know, a lot to do too with his, his composing. I'm I'm reading this book called Sondheim on Music. It's an interview with him, but his he always picked the right people to collaborate with and his orchestrators really helped bring his music to life and his, his composing. It's it's inspiring. I I always get immersed in in that music yeah and what he can do with words sometimes i'm like man i wish i could write uh write with lyrics and i you're seeing a lot more marimba and and vocals now so maybe that's the, the next thing i work on <laughs> yeah all right kyle we're done thank you so much yeah thanks for having me man yeah it's fun um so i it's funny i've it's kind of a side note when um you know, when you contacted me oh, like last year, um, I actually showed – so I taught a career development in music class uh, this past – first time I had taught it. And um, and when they would, and the students were asking me about podcast-related stuff and I said – well, it was like I actually – I had recently got – I don't very often get a lot of people who kind of like cold call me, but I mean like, you know, on the email side. Right. Um, but I showed your email with, I took your information out. Like, like right. they don't, but, but I said like, this is actually one that I respond to because you actually had like, it was clear that you like were aware of the show right. and like listen to it and, and stuff like that from what you wrote. Um, Cause I'd gotten other ones where people hadn't, if they did, they did not make it clear. I'll yeah. put it that way. Yeah. Well, I tell you, I listened to probably almost all your episodes. Now I listened to Oliver yesterday. Awesome. Listen to Hannah's and, and I remember Kristen being on it, talking to her back then, but it's great. Cause when I'm doing like my email responding in the morning, I love it. And, uh, it's, it's a valuable tool, man. All, all your interviews are such a, and I'll tell my students, I was like, Hey, go listen to this one. It's great that you're having this all, all down. It's a, just an awesome contribution to the percussion world. It really is. Oh. Thank you. And I feel like, you know, I know we've never met before, but it's funny for me, since I've listened to you so much on your podcast, I feel like I know you like, <laughs> for the last couple of years. <laughs> oh, well, that's that's very nice. It's it's uh, I've, I, I think I, if you just listen to Oliver, he said a very similar thing. I, I've heard that before and I, I appreciate hearing that. It's like it's a nice thing. And I think that's what, what's kind of fun about podcasts, too, is that yeah. the ones that I listen to, I feel like. They're all my friends, and I've never met any of them. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> it, was, you know, it was nice to hear back from you because when I finished the book, I had two publishers I was talking with. They're like, hey, let's let me put this together for you. And at the time, I, I learned about what publication was all about. And I'm like, I don't know if I want to give this all away. Like, I was very happy with how it worked. So I was talking to my, my friends at Eastman who put, helped put this together, and I can't remember. It might have been Connor Stevens at the time. He's like, hey, you should – I think he was just on, maybe he was just on your podcast. He's like, Hey, you should contact Pete. Let's And self-publishing has been an interesting challenge. Cause, cause I never, I never want to like just throw myself there, but it is interesting. Cause there's gotta be a balance between 
promoting music and all that. I'm kind of moving away from the self-publishing now, though, because I spent so many mornings at the post office sending stuff out, and it gets it gets much uh, it gets a lot on top of everything else. You know, like years and years ago, when I talked to Casey Candelosi, um, that was a thing that I think he had realized is that he had to. I mean, because he he was like skyrocketing, uh, you know, like from the early days yeah. of, of YouTube and stuff. And it, he realized that it was like it was just taking up an enormous amount of time for him to deal with, like exactly what you're saying, printing, shipping. He's just like, I need to, I need to, yeah. I need to have someone else do this. Yeah, and it's crazy the amount of like on my website I sell PDFs and it's like states it like eight times. This is a PDF. This is electronic copy. Electronic copy. Yada yada. And so many people email me, hey, I bought this. When's it being shipped? So then part of me, when I started, I'm like, man, I'm going to go ship them a book because they thought they were buying a physical copy. So it got too much. But now Steve Weiss is great. They sell for him. It's like it, it's kind of you're kind of doing it the right way in some ways because you have the – you've kind of marketed it well enough that you can – this is now the new problem. <laughs> you know, yeah. It's like you've got to the next level of the problem or of, of, of kind of the situation, which is someone else needs to start dealing with this. Right. And then, I don't need to be Superman. To yeah, yeah, right. That, that soundscapes to, to my surprise, I got contacted. It's going to be on a couple state competition lists. Nice. So that'll be great. It's it's cool. People and I, you know, all my friends are supporting. It's been it's being used in a, a few schools now. So it's cool to see other people finding use from it and benefiting students everywhere. So that's cool. It's been rewarding. Great. Great to chat with Kyle on the podcast. I thank him for his support for the show, and I look forward to hearing more from him in the future. And I want to apologize for some of the audio issues in the interview. They appeared after the fact, and I'm really not sure what happened, but I made an attempt to make it work. Oh, well. This week's rave is the 2004 gigantic book, Alexander Hamilton, written by Ron Chernow. If you are familiar with the Lin-Manuel Miranda musical Hamilton, which at this point, it's likely, then great. It was a groundbreaking musical when it came out in 2015 and was reintroduced to audiences again when the movie version of it came out in 2020 during the height of the COVID pandemic. If you're familiar with the musical, then you may be familiar with the source material, which Miranda admitted he read while he was on vacation after the close of his original Tony Award-winning musical, In the Heights. And this inspired him to write his musical, Hamilton. Again, a very large biography, over 700 pages, is what was written by Ron Chernow, an author, historian, and journalist, who has a habit of writing very large biographies of famous white men, including John D. Rockefeller Sr., George Washington, and Ulysses S. Grant. Alexander Hamilton is a figure of great importance to the early years of the United States, very closely involved in the creation of the federal government and its working order, the battles to break from Great Britain in the revolutionary years, the beginning of the banking system, and many other items. He was in many of these roles due to his close relationship with the first president, George Washington, and made connections over these years while being unable to hold the highest office due to the fact that he was an immigrant 
born in the West Indies, and because he made a lot of people mad, frankly. Chernow, while being incredibly meticulous as a researcher and historian and well-versed in many fields, is a really good writer. Rather than come up with my own language to describe it, I'll quote from Stephen B. Presser's review of the book, saying in part, The way Chernow integrates international affairs, domestic politics, economic and constitutional theory, and astute psychological analysis is nothing short of wondrous. One of the other aspects of the book that feels incredibly important to state here is that if you do follow American politics these days, you can see so much of what you read in this book showing up in today's politics. Many situations that Hamilton faced in his day, whether through his own handiwork or someone else, fits into today's political landscape pretty easily. And the writing puts the beginnings of the United States into a thriller-style format and makes for incredibly enjoyable reading while showing the enormous challenges that occurred to make the United States a nation. If you're up for the full Alexander Hamilton story, check out Ron Chernow's book, available everywhere. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode of the show and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete's at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time. Until then.